There's something that can be so restful about the praise of the Lord and just hearing that chorus over and over again. Glory, glory, hallelujah, which hallelujah, of course, means praise the Lord. But that simple line is, Jesus, you are good. What a word for us to sum him up. And so it's a, an easy word for us today, you know, in our culture, in our vocabulary. Good means anything that's average, and we know that Jesus is anything but average. I remember the scene in um, Chronicles of Narnia movie, the first one, where uh, Lucy, the little girl who uh, is just totally in love with Aslan the lion, and Aslan is the, the figure of Christ. And Lucy's a figure of an innocent and pure believer, one whose heart is just for, um, you know, the things of the Lord. And she's having a dialogue with, um, with Mr. Tumnus, who's got deer legs. So if you haven't seen it, now you're intrigued. And um, as Aslan is leaving, as he has a tendency to do, because he has plans outside of the demands of people, Aslan's leaving, and Lucy is saying that she's going to miss him. And uh, she says, why does he leave? And Tumnus says, well, after all, he's not a tame lion. You know, he doesn't come at our beck and call or what we think is important or necessary. And so he says, after all, he's not a tame lion. She says, no, but he is good. And there's an underlying trust in that word good, that even though he comes and goes, even though we miss him, even though we don't understand his plans and purposes, the foundation of his goodness is still worthy of our trust. And as we are experiencing this morning, worthy of our praise to be able to lift him up. And that's really the goal of our preaching as we come together as a church and understanding that what we try to do with centering everything on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel simply means the good news. And so we try to adhere to that anchor, if you will, as we teach and we preach God's word. And the goal of gospel-centered preaching is to reveal the real Jesus to all of us. So that we are constantly combating the Jesus of our own making or design, the Jesus of our own cultural instincts, and seeing the one who is, because the one who is is good, the one who is is trustworthy, the one who is is, uh, is worthy of all of our praise. And so we've been seeing the real Jesus in the book of John. In the New Testament, and we've come several chapters in now, and, and at every stop, Jesus is revealing a little bit more of who he really is. And we've been camped out on this story of the woman in Samaria, what the, the title of your text might say in your Bible, the woman at the well, because this is actually the longest recorded dialogue between Jesus and anybody else. This story between him and this Samaritan woman. And so it's going to take us a little bit of time to get through it, but mostly because it's so rich, and I think, too, that it speaks so poignantly to our cultural uh, challenges today. It speaks so poignantly to the condition of our own hearts. We see in her our own being and our own challenges, our own heart condition and things. And so it's going to take us a while to keep digging into the story so that we see the real Jesus coming out of this text and so for the last couple of weeks now, we've talked about this woman who's had, uh, to put it, you know, politely a checkered history, and she's been in and out of love, and it's turned into a, a, a life of exchanges, and the bitterness and the hardness of heart that can come from that kind of thing over and over and over again, and yet she encounters the tenderness and the compassion of the one that created everything. 
And she's having a hard time wrapping her heart, her heart, her head, her experiences around the fact that here is supposedly the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, a long-awaited one, the anointed Christ. And he's talking to me like somebody I wish would have talked to me years ago. And so all this woman has known of God has been incomplete because she's had limitations in her experience. Now, all of, all of history has had an incomplete understanding of who God is because even though he's revealed himself in truth, we have a limited understanding of that truth. And so it was true of the Jews, but it was also true of the Samaritans. They had a, they had a limited view of the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrews called the Bible. And the Samaritans called the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Bible. They said the rest of that, you know, with the, the prophets and the poetry and the minor prophets, major prophets, all the things that we kind of structure the Old Testament to be, that wasn't the Bible to them. It was the first five books, it was the law. And the rest, as God was spelling out the, the warnings and the promises and the prophecies that the Messiah would come and, and what he would come for, particularly rich in books like Isaiah and other places, the Samaritans missed all of that because they didn't see that as the Bible. And so she had an incomplete understanding and she probably wasn't all that religious to begin with. So how much of those first five books she even knew, we don't really know. But it was also a distorted view of God because she was surrounded by pious leaders. We've been talking about those guys and we won't stop talking about those guys as we're seeing the life of Jesus play out here in the pages. These guys that were walking around, they had their phylacteries, they had all these proofs that they were very um, religiously uh, astute, uh, they were uh, devoted, all of those things were on full display so that those that weren't at their level constantly felt uh, lower than, lesser than. And so she was limited because of the piousness of those leaders around her. She was limited because she was a woman. She wasn't in that cultural day worthy of the same kind of educational attention or dialogue that the man would enjoy and experience. And so she wasn't in the inner circle. She was as, as a crowd was pressing around the truth. It was always like, you, you got to get to the back of the line. Because you haven't earned your stripes through religious practices. By the way, you were born the wrong gender. And also, you're even a cultural outsider to your own people because of the multiple marriages that have failed in your life. And the man that you're now with isn't even your husband. So even amongst your own people, you're at the back of the line. So move outside the circle a little bit more. So her understanding of who God is and who the Messiah was supposed to be was severely handicapped. And Jesus, through John's gospel that we've been studying, has been revealing his true self through these profound physical expressions, the things that, that the regular person could, could see and, and, and have some anchor to the language and the, uh, the picture that he's painting here. John had said, Behold the Lamb of God. This is the one who is going to be the true sacrifice. And the Jewish ear heard Lamb of God as the centuries of sacrifice that they would slaughter the lamb and spill the blood and do those things for their sins. And they said, no, no, that's him. All of those practices, even though ordained by God, were only meant to point to the fact that the true sacrifice would come. Jesus comes to the wedding. And they run out of wine, and so he takes the water and he turns it into wine because wine was symbolic in the Jewish uh, festivals and things as a presence of joy and supply. 
Jesus says, I'm the true joy and supply in life. He comes to the temple and they're abusing their privileges and their power. They're making a quick buck or denarii off of the uh, prophets of the temple and everything. And so he comes in, he says, this is, this is supposed to be a house of worship. This is where my father's name is held sacred and in high honor. So he starts flipping tables over and freaking out on him and chasing him out with a big cord and, and whipping him out of there and everything. Why? Because Jesus is the true center of worship. And this is even going to play out as he's talking to this woman in our text. And he's also showed us even more recently in the conversation with Nicodemus. While Nicodemus has been operating in a physical uh, existence, trying to be devout to the Lord in the physical by doing more religious duty, being more sacrificial, all those kinds of things. Jesus says, you're still not born into the right kingdom. You're not born in the spirit. You need to be born again. So Jesus, even using the the image of birth, helps us to understand that he is true life in the spirit. So now this woman is going to encounter Jesus revealed, God revealed. And if you've seen anything in in the history of scripture as God reveals himself, even angelic presences revealing themselves, it's not so comfortable. It's not so easy to encounter face to face real God. And that's what this woman's going to experience. So we left off last week in verse 14. After the exchange had started between uh, Jesus and this woman about getting a drink of water. And then he said to her, if you knew who was talking to you, you wouldn't have said, how can I get you some water? You don't have anything to draw with. She would, you would have said to me, Jesus is saying to her, you would have said to me, why are you asking me for a drink? You're the one that has the real stuff. You're the one that has the stuff that will never run dry, never run out. But in her mind, in her physical world experience, what she was hearing from Jesus was something that had much more to do with plumbing than actual spiritual revival, actual spiritual new life. You mean to tell me that you're able to dig a trench and have running, flowing water so I don't have to come back to this well anymore? So she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We had said that there was some work involved, of course, you know, carrying around these water jugs and stuff is hard work. And the women did this, but they predominantly did this in the cooler parts of the day, either early morning or late in the evening. And the text tells us that she comes in the middle of the day, most likely because of her shame most likely because of her being an outcast in her society. So she's going to come when the other women aren't doing that as a normal course of action so that she can avoid their stares, so she can avoid their whispers. So she's not just saying, eliminate the work for me. I'm tired of making this trip. She's saying, this is extremely emotionally uncomfortable for me too. So if you've got flowing water that I don't have to come back to this well, I'm all in. So Jesus, instead of just taking her yes on the surface, I'm all in, says this. Okay, fine. That's what we'll do. I'll give it to you. Verse 16, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five, and the one that you have now is not your husband. So what you said is true. So Jesus isn't going to just satisfy, be satisfied with just this polite exchange that's starting to get a little bit touchy, a little bit uncomfortable. He's not okay with the fact that she's into what he's selling. 
from a standpoint of her physical understanding of he's going to give me running water. Jesus says, no, no, it goes much deeper than that. And this woman's problem, just like ours, is a problem of misplaced worship. We're going to talk a lot about worship this week and next. To get an understanding of this is what gets us all off center. This is what gets us to start seeing the physical options and opportunities in our lives as our savior. While Jesus is saying, it's always been me. It's always been the Lord. And you've taken your eyes off of that. What we're going to see through this exchange is that all genuine worship is grounded in truth. So let's look at truth just a little bit because we have to take some time. Obviously, truth is such a subjective phrase now in our culture. Your truth doesn't have to be my truth and my truth doesn't have to be your truth. As though truth in and of itself were based on uh, our own definition and interpretation, but that doesn't make it truth, does it? But truth, as Jesus is demonstrating here, can be a little bit brutal, Jesus has somebody on the hook. This woman is demonstrating what, what, what myself and others in like sort of church growth minded types of discussions would say. She's, she's on the hook. Jesus got a fish in the net. She said, okay, now I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm, I'm, I'm buying what you're selling. So I'm all in. And Jesus says, no, you're not, not quite. Before we get there, you need to square out a few things here. And the first thing is you need to go get your husband. Why would Jesus do this right now? Why would Jesus kill the momentum that he's, he's, he's already, he still hasn't gotten that drink of water. Has anybody done the research in the text? Does he ever get the drink of water? I get thirsty preaching this message constantly because I'm picturing Jesus still going. Uh, and then she has another question. He's like, can I just have a cup, please? Why ask this question here? All, it's all going in the right way, but Jesus kind of hits the brakes on the conversation and makes her feel bad about herself. That's unfair. I like how Wearsby kind of sums this up in a practical way. He says, Jesus had already aroused her mind and he had stirred her emotions, but he had to touch her conscience. Like it does for all of us, that meant dealing with her sin. Last week, we said that our deepest thirsts will always express themselves physically. If, you, if you're wondering, I wonder what kind of person I am. What are the things that I crave? Just take an outside kind of a drone view of your life and see the way that you spend your life physically. And it may not be a one-to-one correlation, but you'll see that it expresses itself sometimes out of left field, sometimes in ways we can't quite put our finger on. That's why sometimes we need some help getting to the sur- below the surface. But our deepest thirsts will always express themselves physically. It's pretty clear to us some of the things that this woman was hungering for in life because she kept thinking she could find it in the next marriage or relationship with another man. This is what happens to us, though, is we have been wounded spiritually, and that's just as a result of being born, as we've said before, doctrinally speaking, once Adam and Eve sinned, and the Bible says they just passed it down to the generations. You and I didn't have to, when we were born, have our first freak outfit because our diapers needed changing or we were hungry in order to be sinners. We did those things, one, because we were hungry and our diapers needed being changed, but, but we did those demanding kinds of things because we were expressing our sin. 
the terrible twos and all. You don't have to teach children to live for themselves. You don't have to teach them to be selfish or anything. We spend so much time teaching them to share, teaching them to think about the lives of other people. Why? Because we're born sinners. Those of you that are having those precious, beautiful little ones, just remember they're wicked little sinners. It'll get you through a lot of parenting years. We operate out of that spiritual deficiency that we have. We start to invent ways of getting ourselves in deeper trouble. Why? Because we were born in our sin. We have received the sin of other people who have done things to us. We have all these wounds and these different things that start to just pile on us like baggage. And we can see it playing out in the life of this woman at the well. And we see that we start making these concessions and filling these holes and these gaps and all these kinds of things in ways that are just destructive. And we go, how did I get here? What, what's going on here? What was I looking for? You see, the only path to our healing is through these wounds. These things need to be touched. They need to be addressed in order for us to find healing. This is what Jesus is doing. Imagine going into a doctor's office and you've got some gaping, obvious wound. And and the doctor's like, well, I don't want them to feel bad that they walked in. They're bleeding all over the place and it's just a mess and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to talk to him about um, how have your headaches been? Do you have any irregular heart rhythms or anything like that? And you're like, Doc, this thing over here is what I need help with. But I don't want you to feel bad about yourself. I don't want to touch that. I don't want to have to reset it while it's all broken and, and, and painful and everything. It's just uncomfortable to go through. You would say, well, that's why you're the professional. Even though I don't want you to touch it, I know you need to. So please do so. This is what Jesus is doing. You see, culture is constantly saying that you and I need to be true to ourselves. I don't know about you, but the truer I am to me, the more I dig a deeper hole in my life because I'm not the best authority over my life. I can't seem to figure out from day to day what it is I want, what it is I need. So I don't think the right calling for us is to be true to ourselves. I think it's what she, what Jesus is demonstrating here. It's time to be true about ourselves. And the deepest problem that you and I have lives within us. What she is experiencing is this uh, uh, external, visible expression of the brokenness that's inside of her. This is why Proverbs 4 warns us to keep our heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. These outward expressions are coming from the innermost us, is how the Bible would define the heart of man and women. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who of us, who, who, who in our human state can understand it? Only the Lord can understand our hearts and fix it and heal it. We've said before that this is what John Calvin has said over the years. He's called it the, uh, that, that our hearts are idle factories, that you picture this conveyor belt inside of you, that it's like everything that we see that's new and shiny that promises to fill the void. We're like, ooh, that looks nice. Oh, I didn't know I needed that. Now that's all I can think about. It's having a hard time dropping it. This is what we do is we, we spin out, we churn out these little idols, these little trinkets in our lives that we think are going to be worthy of our worship and and deliver us from our pain. 
But this, what this woman was experiencing is this misplaced worship. And anything that replaces Christ as the true center of worship is the definition of an idol. It's not easy for us to recognize this. Sometimes we just get into a, a, a rut. We're like, well, this is life as usual. I, I do these things. I do that thing. I don't ask for a whole lot. I don't bother anybody. How do I know if this is an idol? How do I know if this is destructive in my life? Let's look for some signs of what might be an idol in our hearts. How much do we sacrifice for it? Do we spend time and money on it? Do we find ourselves or do others hear us talking about it incessantly? Do we find ways to serve it? Do we look to protect it? Do we find ourselves thinking about it a lot more than we should? Which, of course, leads into worrying about it, wanting to protect it and and schedule around it and perfect it. And unless you think I'm only talking about the dirty stuff or the negative stuff or the sinful stuff, I'm even talking about the things that God wants for our lives that we might jump ahead of his plan and sin in order to get it because he's just not delivering it fast enough or in the way in which I I feel satisfied with or it's not based on my liking or my definition of provision or blessing. So I get ahead of the Lord and that becomes an idol even on the good things. This is what we need to understand, though, is that God is too jealous. Yes, he is jealous of our hearts to allow idols to remain. We don't like to think of God as being jealous because we think of jealous as a character flaw. We're not supposed to be jealous over anything. But but if we understand God's rightful place is above everything because he is perfect, pure and holy above all, anything that competes for his throne, if he allowed it, he would himself be guilty of idolatry. So God says, I'm not letting you dwell on this. I'm not letting you keep these idols in your hearts. I, I care about you too much. I, I care about your sanity. I care about your provision. I care about your care. I care about all of those things. And I also care about my own glory. So he's too jealous to allow those hearts, to, those idols to remain in our hearts. And so he seeks ways, he, he enacts ways to eradicate those idols from us. But, you know, sometimes we need to be a little bit sharper in recognizing them. And we miss our idols because we're so focused on everyone else's sins against us. And so it takes some creativity. It takes some awakening in our hearts to recognize and go, I didn't realize I was doing this. I didn't know I was saying this, thinking this, living this way. And sometimes people need to point it out in us like David needed from Nathan. David was uh, the, the powerful king, the victorious warrior. He was all of those things. And David, as we know, got to a place where he felt like he deserved God's blessings. He was always one who passionately craved it, begged God for protection, walked in his care. And eventually he became King David. He's like, hey, I'm king. If I want her, I should be able to have her. And in one of the saddest stories of the Bible... The, the great and, and noble and dedicated Uriah loses his wife, a, a treasured beauty, so much so that the king would look at her and say, I need to finagle whatever I can in order to have her. And Uriah, the loyal servant to the king, blindly loses his wife to the king. A prophet comes along and tells him, says, uh, King, we've got a problem in our, 
in our country, there's somebody who was getting ready to uh, feed his guests. They had all these pompous, uh, important people show up, and the and this guy was was looking at all of his spread, all of his livestock, and he's like, "I know I've got plenty. I just don't want to use any of it. I want to take the one from that guy. He's got one precious lamb, but that one looks tasty, so I'm going to take it from me." Instead of instead of going back to his own supply. And you could you can hear in the story David's rage is building like who would take who would who would cause such victimization in somebody else's life, especially one so blessed and privileged. And, and he says, so he took the lamb and he slaughtered it and he served it to his guests. They were all happy and and fed and full. But that one person who had that precious lamb, he's lost everything. David says, bring him here and we'll take care of him. He says, he's already here. King, that person's you. You've taken this man's bride, this, his, all of his life, his one precious prize in his life. And you had so many to choose from and you decided, I'm just going to take it from that one. The brutal truth that is needed to be delivered to us because truth can be brutal is so helpful and instrumental in our lives to get us to, to strip away these idols and to live for the glory of the one who truly deserves it instead of wasting our time and, and destroying the lives of people around us as we live for our own glory. Truth can be brutal, but it's also undeterred. Let's get back into our story here a little bit in verse 19. Jesus has just said, this is what you have going on with all your husbands and your current exchange relationship. A woman says in verse 19, uh, I think you're a prophet. You know some things. So then she says, oh, since I'm talking to a prophet, in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So Jesus said to her, okay, let's deal with this, but let's deal with it quickly. He says, women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Think back to the fact that she's got a limited perspective of scripture she's got five books there's a lot she's missing you worship what you do not know we the jews who have that full um uh, uh scriptural revelation from the lord uh, we worship what we know for salvation is from the jews this is what she's doing here she's She's doing what we do. It's get, the heat's getting a little bit warm. The spotlight's a little bit too much on her and on her uh, behavior. And so she's trying to deflect. She wants to sidestep. She goes, oh, I got a prophet here. Hey, this is something that we've all been wondering for a long time. We have these two locations. We have Mount Gerizim over here, and that's what we've historically worshipped on because of what Abraham did before he went into the promised land. So we think that's the place where worship ought to happen. But you Jews, you want us in the temple. We tried this a long time ago, and you guys said not welcome. So we just want to know, are we in the right? Are they in the wrong? What's going on here? It's like taking your car to the mechanic on a flatbed because it's do- totally decommissioned. And the mechanic takes one look at it and says, oh, you've, you, I've seen it so many times with this model and everything. You've got a transmission problem. This thing is, it's going to cost you some money. Oh, I think you're a mechanic. You could spot this just by seeing it. Hey, listen, let me ask you a question. Uh, would you recommend a four-cylinder or a six-cylinder? I know the gas mileage is good, but do they last as long and all these kinds of things? And the mechanic is like, hey, time out for a second. You've got a decommissioned dead car on a flatbed, and you want to talk to me about the merits of a four-cylinder versus a six-cylinder? 
And so, so the mechanic might answer it and say, yeah, okay, so fine. I'm a fan of six cylinders over blah, blah, blah. But let's get back to your issue here. And Jesus is saying, yeah, okay, you, you don't have all the information. You don't know exactly what you should be doing when it comes to worship because you're operating out of what you don't know. The Jews are operating about what, from what they do know. And even some of the things that they have refused to recognize that salvation is from the Jews. The revelation has been given to the Jews. This is who God is. This is where Messiah will come from. And Jesus himself is a Jew. And he has come from them in order to deliver this message of hope to this Samaritan woman. I love how he doesn't say salvation is for the Jews as though it's exclusive. Because that's the whole point of John's gospel is that Jesus is just opening up this invitation to all the world. He says it's from them. But because truth still matters, he's not going to totally ignore her hang up. He's not going to ignore the fact that they have some uh, error that needs correcting. But Jesus nonetheless is still undeterred by her deflection of discomfort. And he responds to her with even more kindness. Let's look at verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the woman said, oh, well, I know that Messiah is coming and he'll, who he who is called the Christ. And so, I, I, you know, when he comes, he'll, he'll tell us all these things. He'll straighten us out. You can almost see her, at least in my imagination, you can almost see her thinking, okay, this conversation's gone on long enough. I don't need him exposing even more of my stuff, finding even more husbands in my closet. No, he says, she says, uh, I, I'm pretty sure the Messiah's coming. He'll clarify that. I don't know. This is all above me and beyond me. I can't figure it out. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Think about the kindness of what Jesus is demonstrating here. And and try to hear this from her perspective as best as you can relate. Jesus is, is, is extending an invitation to this outcast, the one who's been outside the circle, who's been pushed out for all of those reasons, to be one of the few true worshipers. He's revealing what the real qualifications are, not the ones that all the religious zealots have been saying, not the ones that everyone's just imagined, all the things that have kept her uh, in the dark about all these things. He's saying, no, there are real qualifications for worship, and pretty soon it's going to have nothing to do with if you're on Mount Gerizim or if you're back in the temple or any of these kinds of things. That isn't the point. The point isn't where your worship is located. It is who it is centered on. So, ma'am, it's time to be true about yourself, and it's also time to be true about who God really is. And he says, and God is seeking them out. Do you think she's expected to get picked for any team? Isn't that like the biggest scar of our childhood is whether or not we were picked for the team or we were the last one picked? So many people have spent thousands and millions of dollars on couches around because they were the last one picked for the team. This is her. And and Jesus is saying, God's looking for people with the heart that you can demonstrate. That if you allow me to touch this wound, if you allow me to heal your hurting parts, and you come clean with these things, rather than deflecting, I don't want to talk about this, it's too personal. 
I'd rather, I'd rather just go about my business. I've carved out a life for myself here. If you allow me in, you're the, you'd be the type of person God is seeking out to worship him. And Jesus says for the first time, not to, not to his disciples that he's been journeying with, not to Nicodemus, who's earned all the respect for all the goodness that he's done and the religion that he's accomplished and everything that we saw back in chapter three. He decides to tell this outcast woman for all of the reasons that she's an outcast. By the way, I'm the savior. I'm the Messiah. The one that everyone's been rumored about and culture's been waiting for and people have been, it's been on the headlines lately and the Jerusalem Gazette and all these kinds of, it's, it's me. See, being on God's side has nothing to do with being who you aren't. That's what religion allows us to do. We can practice things on the outside and nobody's any wiser as to what's going on in our hearts. Jesus says, I'm not looking for religious people. I'm looking for people who are willing to say, yep, you got me. That's who I am. You just exposed me and I've got nowhere to hide. So I'm offering that to you. I'm yielding that, giving that over to you. I'm serving who he is, not the Jesus I've made him out to be. That's what real worship looks like. Jesus says that our worship is to be in spirit and in truth. So truth has to be at the foundation of our worship. But also he says it's in spirit because worship is personal. You ever had a conversation with somebody, you're trying to talk to him about maybe the uh, um, uh, biblical matters, how, who Jesus is, what he's done in your life. And, and if you haven't had those conversations, I encourage you to do that. The stats would say that very few of us ever do this. Why? Because we've taken a stance. We've, we've said, my religion is very private to me. I used to hear it all the time. We'd talk to people about, do you want to talk about Jesus or do you want to talk about the truth that I have or something? And be like, oh, I believe like you, but it's very, they would say it's very personal. What they mean is, I have no intention of talking to you about it. It's very private to me. But Jesus is saying, this is anything but private. This is spreading out. This is throwing seed everywhere to see what grows. Our worship is to be personal, but not private. It's an intimacy that others get to look in on. But religion is mere performance. So if we're going to have worship that is truly centered, is centered on the truth, we have to understand that worship that covers up the truth of who we are, this is the, this is the stuff about us that God already sees anyway, but we have a tendency to deflect. Ultimately, what we're expressing is self-worship. I want my own protection. I want my own, my own comforts. I don't want you to know who I am. If I'm not willing to fess up before God who I am, then I'm simply protecting myself and I'm performing in front of you. And this robs God of our genuine worship. Worship is personal. That's what he's talking about in spirit and in truth. This isn't capital S spirit. See how I did that backwards? I'm learning. I'm making shapes to an audience that's on the other side of my view. Making sure you're with me. This isn't the spirit. We must worship in the Holy Spirit so that my experience on a Sunday morning is all emotional and, and he comes to me and all that kind of stuff. That's not how this verse is to be used. It is the, the translators rightly put a lowercase s in this. It's almost how you and I would say that person has real school spirit. 
It comes from our core. It comes from our, our insides and we're all in. We mean it. We're devoted to it. Jesus is saying God is, is like scanning the landscape and looking for those who will worship him in the truth of who he is and the truth of who they are before him and they will worship from the core of their being. And worship is our devotion while religion is simple vanity. Now, I got to be careful here because some of you are like, I thought religion was a good thing and everything. And even the scripture says true religion and undefiled is this, is that we would go out and look after the needs of the orphans and the widows and things. So the word itself isn't the ugly thing. It's, it's our understanding of religion being duty and performance. This is what Jesus is coming to undo. True worshipers are all in by intent. It's an act of our will but they're not all in by their own strength. It's after an encounter with Jesus. And the only path to being a true worshiper is through the dismantling of our own perceived goodness. This woman had nowhere to hide. She couldn't escape his gaze. He's, he sees everything about me. If she were to just drop the bucket and say, uh, you're wrong, you got me mistaken for somebody else. It would have haunted her her whole way home because she would have known. He knew something, somehow, knew something about me. But she's starting to sense the fact that she might be, quote unquote, qualified to be a child of God. Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. In other words, the worship of God, the stuff that counts are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. What choice did this woman have but to have a broken heart? So all she's been operating in and living in is a broken heart. She's like, check. I got that one. This is what qualifies her, if you will, to be a true worshiper, to be one of the ones picked for the team that God is seeking. So what do we do with all of this? We need to embrace the discomfort that comes with heart examination. If you and I are going to be all in on Jesus, he needs to get access to the wound. God is not interested in us prettying ourselves up. Covering up our broken pieces. He's saying to this woman, and by extension to everybody who will hear it for the generations to follow, I am seeking those who are willing to let the wounds be exposed so that I can heal them. And you say, well, I've been around people that just won't stop exposing their wounds. That's all I hear about is how broken they are and how sad they are and everything's being done. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about living in continual pity, but just being honest before the Lord saying, you've got me. I, you've, you've seen who I am and yet you're still offering the invitation anyway. How do I give myself to you? And he says, just lay it all down. Receive my forgiveness for the idols that your heart has been cranking out. We need to be willing to take idle inventory of our lives. We have to ask ourselves the tough questions about the things that we desire, the things that have kind of taken over. We need to start asking questions like, am I willing to sin in order to get this? Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? Do I run to it for refuge or peace instead of turning to God? And we could fill in the blank with so many things. Your thing won't be my thing and my thing may not be your thing. But if I'm looking to it for refuge or that, just that moment of peace, I got to have a really loose grip on that and say, Lord, you might have to take this out of my life because it's starting to replace you. 
And what we need to do from that point on is trust that Jesus will take tender care of our wounds, that he exposes them in order to heal them, not to shame us more, not to bury us in our, in our shame or in our defeat, but to trust the fact that he exposed it so he could fix it. So we need to be honest with Christ and, if I dare say, honest with a few people that we know about who we are so that we can worship the Lord in truth. It's exhausting living for him in a phony way, isn't it? Don't nod your head because then you're just admitting you're (laughs) not saying this to shame you, to publicly call you out. But think about that. You know, David was extremely exhausted. And you look through the the list. I forget even which psalm it is. I want to say it's 54. I just can't remember. But he records how he's feeling in the moment that he's covering up his sin with Bathsheba. And And it reads like a modern psychiatry journal. Heart palpitations, sweats, uh, um, uh, uh, paranoia, all these kinds of things because his sin is overwhelming him. And the Proverbs say that, that the wicked are always on the run. They always feel like something's chasing them, wait, waiting to catch up to them. This woman must have been feeling like this day in and day out. Someone finally calls her on it, but the person who calls her on it is the one that can actually do something about it. And he says, trust me. I can give you living waters that will satisfy your soul. And we're going to see, again, spoiler alert, she's going to turn her life around to be truly worshipful. She's going to have Christ at the center of her life for this point on. I'm going to ask you to stand and let's close our time in prayer as we ask the worship team to come and just ask the Lord to do in our hearts what only he can do. God, I want to thank you, Father, for just kind of a relaxed and peaceful morning in your word and in worship. Lord, I know that the peace that we might be feeling in this room is not the peace that everyone's going home with. I know, Lord, that we go back to circumstances and situations, so many of us that need solving, that have been grinding our hearts and our minds for a long time. And Lord, not everybody is an overt sufferer or or even aware of some of the things in their life and heart that are grinding on them. And some think it's going pretty well. But God, the point is, I believe what Calvin said to be true, that our hearts are idle factories. And until I know you face to face, I'm going to continue to make idols. I'm going to continue to center my worship, sometimes at least, on things that aren't you. We all need this dismantling. We all need to come to you in truth. But Lord, we need to trust that you're gentle and you've given us this invitation because you intend to heal the parts of our lives that are broken. Help us to be sympathetic towards one another as they struggle. Help us to find the compassion that you've shown us. To not be too quick to judge and to look down, to tell the little stories at noontime as the woman is going to draw water at the well. Help us to not be those people, but instead help us to be like Jesus, to seek out the heart and help lift the soul. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.